This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, March 4th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. What would it mean for the U.S. to beef up its missile defense systems? It's a popular idea, but one that alters the terms of future agreements to reduce nuclear stockpiles. Cato's Eric Gomez discusses the president's request for missile defense funding and what that means for negotiations among nuclear-armed global powers. The White House is asking Congress to give missile defense efforts about $20 billion in 2021. And the big long-term thing that the request is indicating is that the United States is going to try and erase existing distinctions between what's known as regional systems and homeland systems. Uh, And the spark notes of what that means is that Regional systems typically defend relatively smaller areas or maneuver units from shorter range attack. Homeland systems defend the entire homeland. And before, this was a pretty clear dividing line between these two roles, but the Missile Defense Agency wants to try and add certain things that used to only be for regional into the homeland defense picture. First of all, I did not realize that Sparknotes had replaced Cliff's Notes uh, f- as a piece of vernacular. But why does that make a difference? The idea that uh, we should be that they're muddling this line between uh, regional defense and U.S. defense. In a blog post I wrote about this, I outline uh, a bit of why this is important, and that the United States has traditionally relied on nuclear deterrence to protect. The homeland. And we've always said that missile defense is meant to protect against small countries like North Korea or Iran, so-called you know rogue states that don't really have very sophisticated arsenals, and that we weren't trying to use missile defense to build up an insurance policy against a Russian or a Chinese attack. They have always, the Chinese and the Russians have always had a hard time believing us, um, because we keep on expanding the the size and the ambitions of our missile defense system. And if we do this, if we effectively erase this distinction and allow things that were previously only useful for regional defense into homeland defense, it's going to become all that much harder to convince or reassure the Russians and the Chinese that we aren't trying to aim missile defense against them. Because these regional systems are a lot Uh, more reliable. They're a lot less expensive to produce. And so you can build a whole lot more of them, um, which gives you a thicker defense shield for the homeland. So with respect to us, the US, negotiating with countries like China and Russia, what what specifically is, is their concern? That the United States will be deploying a much broader missile defense system for countries that are not the United States against their weaponry? Not necessarily. It's more that the United States will have a better shield for the United States. And the problem with this is that traditionally speaking, especially when arms control with Russia, the approach the U.S. has relied on is mutual reductions in offensive weapons. So both sides reducing the number of warheads and missiles they have equally. The problem is if the U.S. has a really good missile defense system at its disposal, then It's a lot easier for us to reduce our numbers, but it's a lot harder for the other side to reduce theirs and still have the confidence that what they have left after reduction is enough to ensure deterrence. 
And so, so I, it's the fear then that the United States may not effectively be acting in good faith or that our promises with respect to our reductions, well, what that doesn't mean that much to them? Sort of. I think it has to do with, are we trying to use our arms control in a way that is sort of mutually beneficial or are we trying to use it to a, to gain like a decisive dominance over the other side? Because if we don't agree, if we don't put these better defenses on the table for limitation, then how can the Russians reduce their numbers of weapons in good faith with us if they, you know, if I have 10 fewer arrows and you have 10 fewer arrows, but I have a big honking shield to protect myself and you don't, then it's a lot less attractive for you to reduce your arrows. Uh, and I think that's what you're getting at at the arms control picture is this idea that other countries, especially China and Russia, are going to worry that the United States isn't interested in mutual nuclear vulnerability, which is kind of an underlying thing you need to have effective arms control. And instead, we're going to try and use this system to gain some sort of nuclear dominance over them instead. Has, is this something that uh, politicians either in the White House or in Congress have hinted at for some time? I don't think that's the I don't think that is the intention. Um, I think that is more in the background. Uh, however, what's important here is that the enemy's perception can become a reality. If the Chinese and the Russians are acting like this is a really big problem, then even though we might say, look, you know, we don't have the money to really do this. The technology is better, but it's not quite there to effectively do it. And they don't we could say that until we're blue in the face, but if they don't believe us, then they're not going to be willing to engage with us on arms control. Um, and I think it's going to be harder to have those types of sort of mutual exchanges with them that gets us to a better nuclear security place. So what is the role here of hypersonic nuclear mm -hmm. weapons? And describe, describe what those are. Yeah. So hypersonic... Uh, weapons or hypersonic glide vehicles, um, they f they are meant to defeat missile defense. So they fly. The thing about hypersonics is not their speed. It's how they fly. Uh, they fly in a glide pattern so they can move around. They can maneuver a lot on their way to the target. And that makes missile defense against them very hard because in traditional missile defense, you're, you're firing on a ballistic trajectory, right? So it's going up and it's coming down in a pretty easy to spot place. If you can see it early, you can make a, you know, a good prediction of, okay, in five minutes, it's going to be here. In 10 minutes, it's going to be here. With a hypersonic weapon, since they move around and maneuver, you don't know where they're going to be. And so they're harder to defend against. Um, both China and Russia were interested in hypersonics um, before, but what really accelerated their development, especially in Russia, was when the United States left what's known as the um, anti-ballistic missile treaty in 2002. And that was a treaty that we agreed to with the Soviet Union in the 1970s that said neither side is going to build up more missile defense than a very small amount of things. Um, and so when we left that treaty, we were basically saying we are going to remove these restrictions from ourselves and start expanding missile defense. At the time, it was all about you know, the axis of evil, Iran, North Korea, Iraq. Um, but since then, the United States has still kept up investments and still expanded missile defense. And so hypersonics are designed uh, to defeat that pretty explicitly. And now in the 
in the budget request that came out a few weeks ago for, for the next year, developing systems to try and protect against hypersonic weapons is also a big U.S. priority going forward. Uh, so it's this kind of um, this this kind of spiral is developing where you know U.S. leaves anti-ballistic missile treaty in 2002, Russia and China accelerate work on the things to defeat new U.S. defenses. The U.S. gets worried about these new systems and starts developing new defenses to counter them too. And you can see how this, if we don't have some kind of agreement on a way to stop this process or to, to control it, you can see how it could just keep going. And whatever, you know, so maybe 10, 20 years from now, we have a discussion of what comes after hypersonics. Like what is the next new technology that countries are using to try and get through missile defense? And then what programs are we throwing billions of dollars at to try and meet the challenge of the new thing? So it it just can become a spiral very very easily. I mean, at first blush, you you hear about uh, the United States wanting to create a better missile defense system, and you would think, well, no one can object to that. Right. It's a very politically popular thing to have. But in terms of actually getting into uh, a negotiation with another major power to try to credibly, uh, honorably uh, reduce. Uh, stockpiles, uh, it's it does, as you say, throw a pretty big wrench into those discussions, right? What's the natural What's the natural reaction from China and Russia then? I think they're going to get uh, very concerned, more concerned than they already are. Um, right now, what I've I've studied the Chinese case more closely than the Russian, but the on the Chinese side, they have relied on a mix of ambiguity about their nuclear forces and nuclear doctrine to try and sort of sow confusion. And the idea being that if the United States doesn't know for sure how China would react to something, then maybe we won't uh, take action against them. They've also started increasing um, their number of nuclear warheads on the Chinese side. The Russians are still bound by a treaty to not do that. Uh, so they can, they're can they a bit more inflexible than the Chinese. And the third major thing that's happening in China is they're developing approaches to conflict that target um, the sensors that we would use for missile defense very early in a conflict. So this is satellites, ground-based radar, um, the things that we would use to see an attack coming. And I think the big problem with this approach is that those systems are also used. Uh, it's something that James Acton of the Carnegie Endowment pointed out in a journal article he wrote couple years ago about what he calls entanglement. This idea that the things that we use to conduct that missile defense mission are also the things that we use to see if a big nuclear strike is coming to the US homeland. So if those systems go offline, either are disrupted or destroyed, it could be very, very difficult to tell why that happened. And you get into a dangerous area where if the United States and China are in a conflict or a crisis with one another, and then we see our ability to detect an early attack going down, does that make it more likely that we would think, oh, you know, an attack's coming, we have to get our nuclear forces out before they can get hit on the ground? Um, so I think that's where the, the danger comes in, um, is in terms of how these other countries are reacting. And then on the arms control side, I think it absolutely makes getting future agreements more difficult unless the U.S. is willing to say, 
all right, look, we know that you guys are bothered by this, so we'll agree to some sort of limit. And we don't have to get rid of them. We don't have to completely divest or of all of our missile defenses. But I think a few limitations on the number of interceptors we have available, uh, the number of things we put out in the field at any one time, I think that could be an effective way to kind of say, you know, we're sensitive to your concerns and we're going to try and do this um, in a way that we can both still benefit. This was, and to just go back to that anti-ballistic missile treaty from 1972, that was the idea that the US and Russia or the US and Soviet Union were both saying, look, we're not going to get rid of this, but we'll set a cap, we'll set limitations on our defensive systems. And then when that was established and it came before the other treaties that reduced the number of offensive systems too. And I think going forward, the Trump administration has talked a lot about wanting to get China and Russia involved in arms control. And I think that's a worthy goal, but the US is going to have to be open to thinking through what are some limitations on our own defenses that we could put in place to get this bigger goal of a treaty that reduces nuclear risk among us. Eric Gomez is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.